It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this session is called Victorious Love, and it's four stories of overcoming evil with good. Most of this message is going to be story-based, and it's really a response for me to the message in this series called The Rise of the White Hoods, if you all were there for that one. If you haven't listened to that one or tuned into that one, I would definitely recommend it's, it's not an easy listen, it's not an easy one to walk through, but it's very eye-opening and very convicting and very powerful. But just as a quick review, the rise of the White Hoods kind of tracked the history of the KKK, the origins of it, and it was a lot of the information I wasn't familiar with. I kind of had a vague idea of where the, what that was, what they stood for, but really it was, it was really rooted in people who had this moral view of life and they wanted to preserve the moral integrity of our culture and a lot of them were Christians and they believed in you know a Christian worldview and yet their approach to dealing with people groups that they looked at as a threat that they looked at as dangerous or undesirable or people groups or political groups that were taking their country in the wrong direction their approach was very evil, very not Christian, and yet they justified all of their actions, really horrible actions, under the banner of, you know, we're standing for truth. And it really hit home because going through the last, I guess, 25, 26, 27 years in ministry, every time I throw out a number, Eric always corrects me, he's very mathematical, no, we've been in ministry X number of years, to me it all blurs together, it's in the upper 20s. And, but seeing so many different spheres of the church and of Christianity, and seeing a lot of different groups who justify venom toward other Christian groups, toward other individuals, toward non-Christians, toward political groups that don't share their particular beliefs and convictions. And I've been in a lot of Christian circles where people are very passionate about what they believe and what they stand for. Usually it has to do with protecting doctrine, you know, the integrity of the Word of God. But they sit around and they badmouth and they bash and they criticize others, maybe within the church, who don't uphold those same values or look at doctrine a different way. And it's, it's, they can mock them, they can make fun of them, they can tear them down, they can criticize them, and they feel completely justified in doing that because they're standing for truth. And we see that happening at large in our society today where, as conservative Christians, we can feel the freedom to hate and badmouth and bash and criticize any other group of people or political force that we feel is off track and dangerous and threatening. And again, it feels very justifiable at times because we're standing for righteousness, we're standing for truth. And I once heard someone say that if you're not standing for God's truth in God's way, you're not really accomplishing anything. I always go back to that, that scripture in James, which I don't have on our notes today, but it's the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When you approach something with venom and human anger and fleshly pride and you think you're doing the right thing, it doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. It doesn't produce righteousness in our own lives. It doesn't produce good change in anybody else's life. 
And so we need to be very, very careful not to fall into that trap, not to take that bait, even though we can be very passionate about standing for truth. We have to stand for truth in God's way. And so this group, the KKK, the original KKK, who had apparently millions of members when they first kind of launched, their, their whole premise was they dealt with people groups or political groups or individuals that they felt were threats by, through intimidation, through violence, to put them in their place in any way they could. It was like they were taking matters into their own hands, and they really believed that they were protecting their homeland for, for all that is good and righteous. So it's like we can violently kill people and threaten people and intimidate people, but look at what we're preserving, this good, moral, upright culture that we want our children to grow up in. Very ironic, and yet they didn't see the irony. They felt they were protecting future generations. But at what cost? The venom, the hatred that they had toward immigrants from other countries and other people that they thought were problems, it reminds me so much of little inklings of that kind of venom and spite that I've seen in modern Christian groups towards either others in the church that disagree with them or those outside the church that they look at as a threat. And that can seem very justifiable on many levels. But in Scripture, we see a very different approach. It's a startlingly different approach. Let's just take a couple of Scriptures that, and highlight some things that Jesus said, Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who cur- curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I mean, that is a completely baffling command that Jesus gives us there, where we're thinking, wait a second, your enemies, I mean, in in this time, he could have been referring to the Romans who persecuted and oppressed the Jews or any other number of enemies that these people would have, but they were cruel, they were evil, they were oppressive, they were tyrants. And Jesus is saying, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That is not humanly possible to do that. It is only possible by the enabling power, the grace of God. Luke 6, 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And what an opposite approach to what we saw in the history of the KKK. They were not doing good to those that they thought were opposed to them. They were doing evil to them, thinking they were accomplishing something good. And then Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the most powerful statements in Scripture as far as dealing with the evil that surrounds us, dealing with evil that comes against us, do not be overcome by it, but overcome evil with good. He's saying you have this amazing spiritual tool, this amazing weapon in your hands to overcome evil, and it's not with force or violence or intimidation tactics or hatred or criticism or threats. It's with good. Again, so counter to the way we're wired and the way that we in our own human minds think is the solution. Now, it's easy to think that those principles of loving your enemies is for a different time, a different place than where we're at right now today in our world and our culture. You know, when I grew up with those verses, I always thought, well, someday, you know, if I'm ever like persecuted for my faith and they're throwing me in jail and they're saying, deny Christ or die, you know, those would be the moments when I would love my enemies. But this is for every day. This is for every person that we encounter that is opposed to what we stand for. And we as Christians today in our culture are, are hated by many people on the, quote, left in our culture today. What we stand for is despised and is ridiculed. 
And our tendency might be to hate back, to throw, to return spite for spite. And we might use phrases like, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's a very popular phrase that a lot of conservative Christians will use, but we need to take a deeper look and ask, are we really loving the sinner? We can say it. Are we really loving the sinner? Or are we bashing them, resenting them, mocking them? I've heard Christians say that they want certain people on the liberal side of things dead. They want these people to die because they're so disgusted with their political agenda and what they're doing to our country. But is that the way God wants us to approach those people? Doesn't mean that loving them and doing good to them excuses what they stand for or what they're doing or says it's, it's okay, just let them do what they want, no big deal. But there is a, a Christ-like approach and there's an evil approach. So are we willing to show love in return for hatred? Are we willing to overcome evil with good? And it is so much more powerful than these human tactics of hating and bashing. So in this message, I want to share four stories from history about overcoming evil with good. These are breathtaking stories. If you really look at the power of what God did through these individual lives when they chose to overcome evil with good, and there is not one of these stories could ever be accomplished in human strength, ever. I mean, they're so opposite of the way we would naturally respond in these situations. Some of these stories might be new, some might be unfamiliar to you. All of them are pictures of the gospel and they show us what is possible when we choose love over hatred. Now, most of these stories took place during World War II or just after. So Eric is around the, the time period of 1942, early 1940s in the, in the series in history. And so I try to look at stories that were right from that same time frame in history because it's a really interesting time in history where you do see very defined groups that hate other groups and very defined ways of approaching evil encroaching that are not Christ-like. And yet in the midst of that, there are these individual lives that lived in the complete opposite spirit. And so I think it's, it's fascinating to realize that most of these stories took place right at the same time that a lot of that hatred was happening in our culture. The first story is about Jacob DeShazer and Peggy Covell, who if you came to our commission show last week, Peggy Covell was featured in that show as a young girl who forgave her parents' killers and impacted the entire nation of Japan as a result. But I wanna back up and give a little bit more context because this story is really in depth and it involves first and foremost a man named Jacob DeShazer. So I'm gonna read this and bear with me. This is the longest of the four stories, but there's so much richness in this story and it's not a commonly known story. So I wanted to take a deep dive with you in this one. Our next four will be shorter than this. So Jacob DeShazer was one of the original Doolittle Raiders. And basically what that means is that he was part of the team that went in as a retaliatory attack against the Japanese after the bombing on Pearl Harbor. It was the Americans' first response to the Japanese uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. And really, you know, looking back, some people would say it was very retaliatory. Some people would say it was good defense. But whatever the case, they were ready to like make a statement back to the Japanese and say, you will not do this to Americans. So here's the context of what happened. On December 7th, 1941, in a surprise attack, Hundreds of Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor and inflicted much damage, including eight battleships and more than 300 airplanes. More than 2,400 Americans died and another thousand were wounded. 
Within a month, the United States had planned its own surprise attack on Tokyo and four other Japanese cities, and in April, the attack was led by Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Doolittle. 16 bombers and 80 volunteer bombardiers were to attack and then fly to the safe the safest safety of the east coast of China, which they did. But of the 16 bombers, some landed in China and crashed there. During the raid, Jacob DeShazer and his fellow crewmen bailed out of their B-25 bomber over China, but they were taken captive by the Japanese as prisoners of war. So they landed in occupied China, and they were captured by the Japanese. And to, to give a little recap, when you study World War II, which I haven't studied nearly as much as Eric has, but the little bit that I do know, the Japanese were notorious for treating their prisoners of war with the most cruel, evil hatred, the most, like, you almost can't even believe the cruelty. And so the things that you'll hear or read about in people's biographies or historical accounts, like they, when, where Darlene Deibler and Russell Deibler were, their island was captured by the Japanese. And they would send, and before the Japanese occupied the island, they would send in these shock troops. And the whole purpose of the shock, shock troops was to put terror in the hearts of everyone that lived there. So they would just come and kill indiscriminately. Men, women, and children kill anything and everything in their path, mow people down. There, was, there were stories that Darlene told of, of these nurses who were there to serve like Red Cross nurses being like put into a cave and, and, the, and burned to death in this cave by these shock troops. They would kill children. It, they had no, it was all like they had no conscience whatsoever. And the stories of torture that you hear by those imprisoned by the Japanese are really excruciating to even read, let alone repeat. And I'm not going to repeat some of them because they are so violent and so cruel that it's very disturbing. And so these were the, the kind of considered the most evil, um, some of the most evil captors, the hands of captors you could fall into during the war. And some would argue that the Japanese, especially Kempeitai, which was the most feared segment of the Japanese military, outmatched the Nazis for cruelty in how they treated people. And these are the people that Jacob DeShazer, he fell into their hands as an as a American soldier who actually dropped bombs on Japan. So he's not in a very good situation. The Japanese moved DeShazer from one prison camp to another where he saw how the Japanese treated Chinese citizens. Those had been captured by the Japanese. This is before he was really uh, being tortured yet. He, he wondered how humans could do that to others. It was the first time I had ever been in such a wicked environment, he said. He soon realized that they would treat him and his fellow air crewmen the same way. They spent most of their time in solitary confinement and faced beatings and the threat of execution nearly every day. They lived on meager rations and received no treatment for Ill illnesses like dysentery and beriberi. Jacob watched his, friend, his, watched his friend and fellow air crewmen die because of the mistreatment of the Japanese, and he was filled with anger toward them for their cruelty. As DeShazer endured the endless days with no news of the war or his release, his hatred for his captors deepened, and then he received a Bible. He had been raised in a Christian home, but the Bible had no real significance for him. He sat in his cell under poor lighting and read the scriptures over several weeks. He memorized as much of it as he could. In Romans, he read, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that day he gave his life to Christ. 
The day after his conversion, one of the guards assaulted DeShazer, which had been happening on a regular basis, and the way they assaulted these men was terrible. The day, the day before, he would have reacted differently, but now he remembered the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. DeShazer chose to love the guard rather than hate him. He spoke to him kindly no matter the circumstance, and over time, the guard became friendlier. God healed the relationship between the prisoner and the guard. DeShazer spent more than three years as a prisoner of war in Japan, continually being tortured, malnourished, and threatened with death. But after his conversion, the grace and presence of Christ surrounded him even in the darkest moments of his captivity. On August 20th, 1945, he was finally released, thin, gaunt, and weak from his imprisonment, but filled with passion for Christ. He returned to the United States and began to testify of the miracle that God did in his life, replacing his hatred toward the Japanese with love. He wrote a tract called I Was a Prisoner of Japan, sharing his story. It was translated and published in Japanese, and over one million copies had been distributed throughout the country. The Japanese, it seemed, were eager to read about Jake and the change that becoming a Christian had made in his life. Japan was at a crossroads. The country's defeat in the war, coupled with the emperor Hirochito's declaration on January 1st, 1946, that he was not a god, but merely a mortal man, had created a spiritual vacuum in the country. I think that is so interesting. Their emperor, they had believed he was a god and that he, was not to, he couldn't be defeated. And that's why they were so aggressive in the war. They just thought they were unstoppable. They thought they had the power of the gods behind them. And he admits after the war, first of all, they did fall in the war. They were defeated. And then he, he admits he's just a human. And they're confused. They're, they're spiritually like floating. Okay, what is truth? Because our truth has now been shaken. Despite the people's sacrifice, because so many of them sacrificed everything for their cause, the old religions had failed Japan, and now many Japanese people were looking for a new religion that could bring meaning, purpose, and direction to their lives. Jake's track seemed to be one of the things that had latched on to its search, the Japanese people. Jacob and his new wife, Florence, began to feel deeply burdened for the Japanese people, and they moved to Japan in order to set up a ministry there. That right there is an amazing step, to be that tortured and oppressed and persecuted as the place of your worst memories, and to take your new wife and your children and go set up a ministry there. We're, we want to reach these people. They're spiritually hungry. That requires the grace of God. He had already walked through a really in-depth forgiveness process. And so I'm skipping over a lot of his story. But they began to get floods of letters from Japanese people who had read Jacob's tract but didn't speak the language well enough to read them. So Jacob and his wife got all these letters from people who read the tract, people in Japan, but they couldn't read the letters. They didn't know what they said. One day, about six weeks after their arrival in Japan, their friend, Dr. Oda, who was a Japanese man who had attended university in the United States, came to visit them and began to open and read the letters that had come to them. One of them said... Dear Mr. DeShazer, my brother and sister were killed by the atom bomb dropped by the Americans. Both of my parents were also very ill from the fallout. I have had great hatred for the American people, but when I read your track, it made me think that there might be a better way for me to live out my days. Perhaps it is possible and even desirable to forgive our enemies. Can you send me any information you have on how to go about this? Thank you. It's like this business letter. Any information? Maybe this is a good step. Would you please send me information? How do you forgive your enemies? Which I thought was very fascinating. Another one said this, 
Today, after reading about you and your wife in the newspaper, I feel that I must write you and ask if you will be visiting Tokyo. I would very much like to talk with you and hear your story firsthand. I was a prison guard during the war, and when I read your story, I felt great shame, something I had not felt before, for what happened to you. Can your religion explain why I should be feeling this now? These people have no foundation of truth. They're just being awakened to something, and they're like, can you please give us direction? I mean, I was a prison guard. I was led to believe that everything I was doing was noble and good and right, my persecution of my prisoners, and now I feel shame. Why am I feeling shame? Maybe I should forgive my enemies, but how? I don't know how to do that. So Dr. Oda, their friend, said, I have never seen so much interest in Christianity expressed in Japan. We have an open door here, and you must walk through it. Dr. Oda offered to be Jacob's interpreter, and together they began to travel Japan and share Jacob's story and introduce people to the gospel. One morning, now this is where the story gets extremely powerful, one morning Jake opened the door of his home to find two men standing there. One of them was a fellow American, Glenn Wagner, the chief rep representative in Japan of the Pocket Testament League, so he was a fellow missionary. The other man was Japanese and about Jake's age. Glenn introduced the man as Captain Mitsuo Fuchida. As Jake bowed, bow, some of the, there's some typos in this, bowed to his visitors, as was customary in China, his mind raced with excitement. Fuchida was one of Japan's most prominent war heroes. He had led the 360-strong squadron of airplanes that had bombed Pearl Harbor and forced the United States to enter the war. Jake wondered what the man was doing at the door. Jake spat, sat spellbound as Captain Fuchitos told the story of how he'd become a Christian. And it's a long story. I'm going to recap part of it for you. Those of you who came to Commissioned know the story where there was this prisoner of war, a Japanese prisoner who had taken prisoner by the Americans. He was imprisoned in America on the Colorado-Utah border. And this 18-year-old American girl named Peggy Covell came there and served him and ministered to him and gave him food and, and the other prisoners. And he asked her, why are you doing this? And she told the story of how her parents had been overseas, taken prisoner by the Japanese and violently killed. They were accused falsely of being American spies and they were beheaded. And she was filled with bitterness, with outrage, all the, the, all the emotions most of us would feel when we, if we were to violently lose two people that we love the most. And then she realized that her parents, they prayed together for 30 minutes before their execution. And God showed her, what do you think they were praying about? What do you think they were doing in those 30 minutes? And she knew what it was. They were forgiving their killers. They were forgiving their enemies. They were loving them and praying for them. And she said, if God can give them the grace to do that right before they're killed, he'll give me the grace to forgive. So she chose to forgive. And then as her statement of obedience, she went to this Colorado-Utah border prison camp and started to serve the Japanese soldiers as an act of saying, this is real. This is not just a mental decision. I am going to serve them with my life. So this one soldier was so blown away by this story that he went back and told Fuchido about it, Fuchida about it. And then we pick back up in the story here. Fuchida explained to Jake how he could barely respond to this behavior. Until that time, he believed completely in the principle of katakuchi, I don't know if I'm saying that right, the Japanese notion of revenge. A good Japanese warrior who had been captured and was awaiting death prayed that he would be born again seven times so that in each of the seven lives he could extract revenge from whoever it was who had killed him. Like, revenge was one of the highest forms of virtue in their culture. 
Nonetheless, hearing the story of Peggy Covell's kindness and humanity toward the Japanese prisoners of war had convinced Fuchida to give up his quest to prove that the military courts were unjust. He was like all about, let me just prove that we were in the right in what we did in the war. That's what he gave his life to. But then he heard Peggy's story and he's like, wait a second. And so he began focusing on the search of the source of such pure love. That began to intrigue him more than trying to prove that the Japanese were in the right. That is when he came across Jacob's track, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, and he took it home and read it many times. This was the second event that convinced him that the God of the Christians was real, and as a result, he bought a Bible and began to read it. He laid down his Buddhist heritage and gave his life to Jesus. Now, Mitsuda Fuchida sat in the DeShazer's living room asking Jake if they could pray together. Jake was struck by the enormity of the moment as he knelt beside Mitsuo Fuchida. These two men had once been on opposing sides in the war. One was the leader of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the first attack of the war on American soil, and the other a member of the Doolittle Raiders who had been the first to bomb Japan. Yet here they were, kneeling together, side by side, praying with love in their hearts towards each other. Before the two men parted, they both agreed to speak at a large evangelistic rally that the Pocket Testament League was planning at Central Public Hall in Osaka on May 14th. On May 14th, 1950, Jake, accompanied by Dr. Oda, made his way to the hall. When they arrived at their destination, Jake could hardly believe his eyes. A huge crowd thronged Central Public Hall, struggling to get into the already packed auditorium, and the police were trying to restore order to the situation. As a result, the meeting was half an hour late in starting. When it did start, 4,000 people were crammed into the hall. Another 3,000 were listening outside on a public address system. At 1.30 in the afternoon, Glenn Wagner called the meeting to order. Jake proceeded to tell the audience the story of his capture by the Japanese in China, his time in prison, and his conversion to Christianity and how that had changed his life. As he spoke, Dr. Oda translated the words for the crowd. Jake ended his talk by declaring to the audience, now I love you as a brother in Christ. Come to know Christ now this afternoon. Once again, the crowd applauded loudly. Then Glenn introduced Fuchida, and again, the crowd went wild with applause. This was their war hero, and it was the first time Fuchida had stood before such a, loud, a large crowd to speak openly about his Christian faith. Fuchida told, his training, told about his training as a Japanese Navy pilot and then as a loyal soldier of Japan leading the attack on Pearl Harbor. He spoke of his disillusionment at his country's defeat and then poured out his story, much as he had told it to Jake when, he first, when they first met. He told of Peggy Covell and how her example had challenged him in his notion of katachukuchi, revenge. Revenge has always been a major motif in Japanese thought, but I am here to say to you that forgiveness is a far greater moral than revenge, he said. Fuchida concluded his talk by saying, I know you long for peace, personal peace as well as world peace, and real peace comes only through Jesus Christ. When he sat down, the crowd rose to their feet and cheered and applauded loudly, and when the applause died away, Glenn took over and invited those who wanted to become Christians to come to the front of the hall. Over 500 people stood and made their way forward. Jake was amazed. Throughout his year and a half of living and preaching in Japan, he had never seen such a large response of people wanting to give their lives to Christ. He felt that he was witnessing an extraordinary moment in Japanese history, a moment Jake firmly believed was the result of constant prayer for Japan and the Japanese people by him and by many Christians in North America and around the globe. So Jake and Fuchido, the two opposing sides, they both represent, 
you know, the height of Japanese hatred toward Americans and the retaliation of Americans toward the Japanese, now they're working together to share the gospel and to share that love and forgiveness is more powerful than revenge. And it's going to totally transform the country of Japan. He and his wife stayed in the country for most of their married lives, raised their children there, and constantly proclaimed that message of hope and forgiveness to the Japanese people. And after the war, the, the soil was ready for those seeds of the gospel to be planted. It's amazing how when we're willing to walk God's pattern, the doors that can open, the, the, the soil that is ripe and ready for truth, God leads us right to where we're supposed to be to plant those seeds of truth. So I want to fast forward to the end of Jacob DeShazer's life because the way that he was at the end of his life is such a testimony to the realness, to the lasting reality of God's miracle of forgiveness in our lives when we open ourselves to it. So in 2002, Jake preached his last sermon at the age of 90. The next year in 2003, Jake attended the Doolittle Raiders reunion in Fairfield, California. It would be the last reunion he attended. Soon afterward, he began showing advanced signs of Parkinson's disease. He also began to experience dementia. Slowly, Jake's world began to narrow and be until it became difficult for him to hold a conversation. Still, he enjoyed his visits from his pastor, Doug Bailey. On one visit, Pastor Bailey asked Jake, do you remember when you were a prisoner of war in Japan? Jake looked quizzically at Florence, his wife. Was I a prisoner of war, he asked. Yes, dear, she replied. You were a prisoner of the Japanese for over three years. Oh, Jake said, really? Doug tried another tack. Do you remember being a missionary in Japan? At this question, Jake's eyes lit up. Yes, yes, Jake said. The whole family was over there. We began churches around the country. How I love the Japanese people. The pastor smiled. Jake had long since forgotten or forgiven the Japanese, and now he appeared to have altogether forgotten their, their brutal treatment of him. But Jake would never forget giving the best years of his life to live among the Japanese as their friend. So when his mind is going and what's really left is what's in his heart, he doesn't even remember those years of being so cruelly treated and abused at the hands of the Japanese. But what he remembers is, I love the Japanese people. That was such a miracle that God did, and it was lasting. Even when his mind wasn't lucid, that was still inside his soul. So that is one story of the power of overcoming evil with good. And I think about if Peggy Covell hadn't taken that step, she had no idea that the whole nation would be hearing her story. That was between her and God. But if she hadn't taken that step of obedience to say, I'm going to forgive, what would the outcome of, of that nation's future have been if Jacob hadn't made the decision to forgive his enemies and to say, I'm going back in to the place that has the most painful memories for me. I'm going right back in to share the love of Christ. What would, the, what would have happened to the country, the nation of Japan? So the power of forgiveness is, is not only for our own lives, it can further the gospel in world-changing ways as well. And that leads me into the second story, which also happened during the Second World War, and it's Betsy Ten Boom loving the Nazis. Now, most of us are familiar with Corey and Betsy's story, so I'm not going to go into nearly as much detail here. It's, it's definitely one of my all-time favorite Christian books, The Hiding Place, and then the follow-up book, Tramp for the Lord, that Corey Ten Boom wrote. But the context is that she and her sister Betsy had been put into 
a German concentration camp as political prisoners because they had harbored Jews in Holland, their hometown. And they had tried to help Jewish people. They had helped hundreds of Jewish people during the Holocaust. And they were captured, someone betrayed them, and they were put into a concentration camp called Ravensbrück. And it was a horrific place, a place of torment, a place of death. In this concentration camp, more than 98,000 women died or were killed because of the cruelty of the Nazis. And they would have them do hard labor, they would have them, you know, meager rations, they would be tortured. If somebody couldn't keep up with the hard labor, with the work uh, projects that they were making them do, they would just be shot on sight. They just had, they had no tolerance for any weakness whatsoever. They looked at it as something that just should be eliminated. And so 98,000 women are being killed or be, be dying because of the conditions or being killed. And this is where she and her sister are. And most of the guards were teenagers or people in their young 20s who had been brainwashed and trained in, in the, the art, if you want to call it that, of cruelty. They had been trained how to be as cruel as a human could be to another human. So the worst possible treatment of humanity up there with the Kempeitai, where you look at them and you're so disgusted by this kind of behavior and you're so appalled that one person could treat another person this way, how would you ever think to love these people? And so Corey is, is walking through all sorts of emotion, all sorts of soul level struggle, obviously, to have any sort of forgiveness towards her enemies because she knows that's what the Bible says to do, but she cannot seem to get the grace to do it. She's, she's wrestling for it. But Betsy had a special grace upon her. She was a lot, it was a lot easier for her to forgive. And Corey did eventually get to the place where she could forgive as well. It was just harder. It was a longer road for her. But I want to just highlight this one snapshot of Betsy's heart for the cruelest of the Germans that she encountered. So they were in the Ravensbrück camp and she was basically dying. Betsy was dying. And they had pulled her off of hard labor, like they had made her move all these heavy rocks, but she was on death's doorstep, so they finally pulled her off of that and made her do some other kind of labor. But it says, though she was now spared heavy outdoor labor, she still had to stand the twice daily roll call. As December temperatures fell, the roll calls became true endurance tests and many did not survive. So just think about that for a moment, that twice a day, all the women had to line up in rank. They had to stand perfectly still in the freezing cold for hours and hours and hours at a time. And the only reason they did roll call was to torture the women. That was the only purpose of it. They weren't trying to take a head count. They were just trying to make their lives as miserable as possible. So if anyone fainted, if anyone could not withstand the hours of standing there rigid in the cold, they would be killed. And so it was a, an endurance test. And imagine waking up every day at like four in the morning and going out there and wondering if you can survive the hour, hour, hour after hour of roll call. So one dark morning when ice was forming, a halo around each street lamp, a feeble-minded girl, meaning mentally uh, disabled girl, two rows ahead of us suddenly soiled herself. And can you imagine if you're standing there for four or five hours at a time? So here's a mentally disabled person who can't control her bodily functions. So this is what they did. A guard rushed at her, swinging her thick leather crop while the girl shrieked in pain and terror. It was always more terrible when one of these innocent ones was beaten. Still the guard continued to whip her. 
It was the guard we had nicknamed the snake because of the shiny dress she wore. I could see it now beneath her long wool cape, glittering in the light of the lamp as she raised her arm. I was grateful when the screaming girl at last lay still on the cinder street. We don't know if she was just beaten unconscious, unconscious or if she was dead, but it was a relief when she finally stopped screaming because the torture was so horrible. Betsy, I whispered when the snake was far enough away, what can we do for these people? Afterward, I mean, can we make a home for them and care for them and love them? Corey, I pray every day that we will be allowed to do this. This is Betsy saying this, to show them that love is greater. And it wasn't until I was gathering twigs later in the morning that I realized that I had been thinking of the feeble-minded and Betsy of their persecutors. When Betsy thought about ministry after the war, she was praying every day that she would have the privilege to show the Germans, those people that had been trained in the most terrible forms of cruelty, that she would be able to show them the love of God. You know, Corey was doing what most of us would do. We want to reach out and minister to those who have been abused, which is obviously a very important ministry as well. But how many people actually had a heart for the Germans to say, I want to show them that love is greater? And after the war, after Betsy did die in Ravensbrück, but Corey went on to do that very ministry. And God did an amazing work in her heart of love and forgiveness. And it was really through Betsy's words to say, I honestly and genuinely and sincerely love them and forgive them and want to show them that God's love is greater. When Betsy, when Corey saw that in Betsy, she asked God to do the same miracle in her, and she was able to really, really impact the Germans after the war. Because after the war, they were in a very similar place as the Japanese. They were defeated, they were disoriented, they were sort of hopeless and lost. And to have someone who had lost almost their entire family at the hands of the Nazis come in and preach that message of love and forgiveness was life-changing for them. The third story, Sabina Wormbrandt loving her family's killer. So this again, after the Second World War, Richard and Sabina Wormbrandt were Romanian Jews and they ministered to people who had been affected by war. Didn't matter who they were, if they were hurting and affected by the war, they were welcome in their home. And Richard was a pastor. And one day a man visited their apartment building and their neighbor described him this way. He has become a brute who likes to boast of how he volunteered to exterminate Jews in Transmistria, if I'm saying that right, and killed hundreds with his own hands. So here's someone who had been a persecutor of the Jews in the war, and he took great delight in all the people that he had killed and the violent way in which he had killed them. Richard asked to meet with this name, with this man whose name was Borilla. Borilla? I'm not sure how to say that. I didn't, uh, it's been a while since I've seen the clip in the movie that kind of highlights this. But here's from the book God's Smuggler. I have something very important to say to you, I told him. Please speak, he said. If you look through that curtain, you can see someone who is asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you killed hundreds of Jew Jews near Golta, and that is where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know who you have shot, so we can assume you are the murderer of her family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me. I held up my hand and say, now and said, now, let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife and tell her who you are and what you have done. I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper and the best that she has in the house. 
Now, if Sabina, who is a sinner like all of us, can forgive and love like this, imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love you. Only turn to him and everything you have done will be forgiven. Borela was not heartless. Within, he was consumed by guilt and misery at what he had done, and, and he had shaken his brutal talk at us as a crab shakes its claws. One tap at his weak spot, and his defenses crumbled. The music had already moved his heart, and now came, instead of the attack he expected, words of forgiveness. His reaction was amazing. He jumped up and tore at his collar with both hands so that his shirt was rent apart. Oh God, what shall I do? What shall I do? He cried. He put his, heart, his head in his hands and sobbed noisily as he rocked himself back and forth. I'm a murderer. I'm soaked in blood. What shall I do? Tears ran down his cheeks. Barilla fell on his knees trembling and we began to pray aloud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness and said that he hoped and knew it would be granted. We were on our knees together for some time. And then we stood up and embraced each other, and I said, I promise to make an experiment. I shall keep my word. I went into the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at that time. I woke her gently and said, There is a man here whom you must meet. We believe he has murdered your family, but he has repented, and now he is our brother. She came out in her dressing gown and put, her arms, and put out her arms to embrace him. Then both began to weep and kiss each other again and again, kissing was more normal in this culture than it is for us. I have se I've never seen bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then, as I foretold, Sabina went into the kitchen to bring him food. Again, these stories are truly the kind that can take your breath away. If you think about the power of that kind of love, of that kind of forgiveness, of that kind of restoration and healing. You know, we can take our platforms of like, this is what I stand for, and anyone who disagrees with what I stand for deserves my hatred and my wrath, and I'm gonna push them back, and I'm gonna defend what I believe is right, and that might get a few things accomplished, not in a Christ-like way, I might add, but how much more powerful when we get in step with God, when we make ourselves vessels, open channels of that supernatural heavenly love and forgiveness that is the same way that Jesus forgave his enemies. It's like we're walking in the footsteps of Christ when we open ourselves up to that kind of love and forgiveness. It's completely undeserving. It doesn't excuse the horrible things that these people did. It doesn't say, well, I believe you were in the right. It just says, I can forgive and love the way Jesus forgave and loved me. Fourth story is Rachel Saint. This is jumping ahead a little bit in history. It was still after the war, but it was a little ways after the war, more in the 1950s. But most people know that context where Rachel Saint was the sister of Nate Saint, who was the pilot, and the, the five men, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the others, who had this vision to go to the Aka Indians. Aka was, a, the, they were named that because the term means savage. And they were considered at that time to be the most violent people in the world. So nobody was allowed to even set like a toenail in their territory or they will be violently speared to death. They did not ask any questions. It was like, if you are an outsider, you are dead. And they were killing each other just at the same rate as they were killing outsiders to the point where they were about to, their whole entire people group was about to be wiped out. Within another generation or two, there would be no one left because they were so violent and they killed each other so frequently. 
And so these men, these amazing, talented, strong men in the prime of their lives, many with young families, decided to risk everything and to go land in their territory and try to bridge the gap and try to show them that they had a message of love and of hope. And they knew that they would very likely lose their lives. They went anyway. They made contact, but then they were violently murdered. And they were murdered in this river. And they had, they had this little strip of land that they nicknamed Palm Beach. And not only were the men speared to death in their bodies in the river, thrown into the river or murdered in the river, but the plane was ripped to shreds. I mean, the violence that these people had was just like, anything we can destroy, we're going to destroy and rip apart. And it was very violent. And so the five men died and they left widows and young children behind. But something happened after their deaths. It paved the way for the gospel to enter a place where the gospel never could get in before. And Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate, was one of the ones to go to these people. And her message was one of forgiveness. You killed my family member, my brother, but I forgive you because of the love of Jesus. And Elizabeth Elliot was another who lost her husband, also went in with the same message. And when they started to ponder the fact that these women were offering forgiveness after they violently killed their family members, it totally shocked them. And they were like, wow, what is that? Because if that had happened in their culture, there's, you don't ask any questions. You just violently kill as revenge. And yet they're seeing something different. And it stops them short. And it actually opens the door for these women to be able to bring the gospel to them. And over the years, the gospel starts to make its way into their culture. The women miraculously survive. Rachel Saint lived most of her life among these people. And they didn't kill her. They began to listen to her message. And there's so much depth to this story that I have to skip over. But their name, the, the name of this tribe changed from Akka, which means savage, to Warani. And I don't remember what that means, but it's a much more um, hope-filled name than savage. So that's what they were known as, as the Warani. And this is something that happened in actually 1965, after Rachel had been there for a couple of, uh, like a long time, about a decade, I guess. And a company, so this happened on Good Friday, 1965. Some of this I'm hoping will make sense because it's kind of a pulled out of a story where you have to have a little bit of context. But accompanying the precious cargo on the airport, on the airplane were Philip and Steve Saint, Nate Saint's two sons who are now aged 11 and 14. Soon after Easter, 16-year-old Kathy Saint arrived. She wanted to be baptized, and she asked Rachel if a Warani Christian elder could baptize her. So these children of Nate Saint had kind of grown up going back and forth, visiting the Warani, and some of their spiritual heroes were men who had from the tribe who had given their lives to Christ and now were elders in the Warani church. They looked up to these men, and some of these men were those who had killed their father. But yet they were on-fire Christians now. And so Rachel spoke to the members of the church about it, about the baptisms, and everyone agreed it was a good idea. Then Steve, a teenage boy named Ainwa and Ankaye, asked to be baptized. Marge Saint flew in from Quito, that's Nate Nate Saint's widow, to witness the baptism. And on June 25th, a large group of people sat out from Tijuana for Palm Beach. So that's the area where the five men were killed. Kimo and Diui led the way. Now, Kimo was actually one of the strongest, most passionate believers among the Warani. He was an elder in the church, and he was a spiritual mentor to to Nate Saint's children. He was one of the, the men who had speared these missionaries to death. 
So that right there is an incredible miracle. The following day, the group gathered on the edge of the river at Palm Beach. They stood beside the grave of the five martyred missionary men as Kimo, Kathy, Steve Saint, Ankaye, Inawa waded into the river. So the children of Steve Saint and some Warani children are going in the river to be baptized. The crowd sang, we rest in thee, which had been the five martyrs' favorite hymns favorite hymn. When they had finished singing, Rachel looked up and saw five red jungle flowers. For her, they symbolized Nate and the other four men who had given their lives so that such an event as the baptism might one day, as this baptism might one day take place among the Warani. After the final bars of the hymn faded away, Kimo baptized each of the four candidates one after the other. When he was finished, he asked the people to bow their heads while he prayed. Father in heaven, he began, you know that we have sinned here. We were ignorant. We did not know that our brothers had come to tell us about you. But now you have put our sins in the deepest water, and happily we serve you and know that we will see again these men that we killed. Father God, these young brothers and sisters have entered into the water. Help them to live happily as we do. Help them to be true to you and your carvings. Amen. By the time Kimo had finished praying, tears were streaming down Rachel's cheeks. Once again, she wished that Nate could have been there to witness the scene. Yet she knew it was his death and the death of the other four that had paved the way for the baptism they had just witnessed. And she knew that Nate would have been touched by the fact that Kimo, one of the killers, was the man who conducted the baptism. Because of God's supernatural enabling grace for impossible forgiveness, truly impossible by human standards, your brother is violently killed, speared to death at the prime of his life, and you go right in there to those killers and pour out your life to bring them the gospel. That is only a work of grace. It can't, we could never rise up to that, but God can do something like that within us. And because of that, in the very place where these men died, the children of one of those missionaries is being baptized by one of the men who killed their father. These stories show the power of overcoming evil with good. And they're just five, they're just four examples throughout history. There's so many countless others. The power of overcoming evil with good. And I feel like the church needs to freshly gain a vision of what is possible through the supernatural love and forgiveness of God. It doesn't mean we don't boldly stand for truth. It doesn't mean we just sort of roll over and play dead when evil encroaches, but it does mean we do not use human tactics and anger and pride and retaliation and revenge, and we play right into the enemy's game when we do that. It means we go a totally different direction. We choose to love and forgive and serve to the level that most would say that is not even possible because that's what opens the door for life change. In every single one of these stories, people you would think could never be open to the gospel were changed forever by the gospel, radically changed by the gospel. And that was, that was what got through to them. That is what opened the door. It wasn't any type of you know, human brilliant argument, human brilliant preaching, it was forgiveness. That is what opened the door to the gospel. So in our day and age, we can choose to walk in that spirit of the original KKK. Now, even if we don't condone the violence and their intimidation tactics, the undercurrent of self-protection and venom and spite towards those we disagree with can still be present in our lives if we host it. Or we can choose God's pattern of victorious love. God's love is victorious. It overcomes evil with good, supernatural, heavenly good that changes souls and changes lives and changes nations for eternity. I just want to finish with a bonus story. We don't have the notes for it or anything, but Corey Ten Boom writes about 
meeting a man named Thomas. During all of her travels, she was an evangelist that traveled the world after the war for most of her life, and she visited almost every country, and she was in Africa, in this one African village, and there was this Christian man, this native African man who lived in this village, and he was a strong Christian. And there was a man, a neighbor across his, the street from this man named Thomas, who was a Christian. And the, the guy across the street, the neighbor, hated Thomas. He hated the fact that he was always singing and smiling and happy and talking about Jesus. And it really annoyed him because this man was filled with bitterness and anger. And he didn't want Thomas to bring the light to him. He was happy in his darkness. And so every night, this neighbor would sneak across the street and try to burn down Thomas's hut. They all lived in these kind of grass huts. And he would set fire to the hut. And Thomas would always have to go out and put out the fire. He had young children, so this neighbor of his was endangering his children by doing this. And it just kept happening night after night. Thomas would just put out the fire, forgive the man. He would not hold anger or resentment towards him. And finally, one night, he set fire to Thomas's hut. And a wind, like a strong wind, caught the, the breeze of the flames and blew the fire across to his own house. So the neighbor's house is now on fire. So Thomas quickly puts the fire out on his own house and rushes across the street to put out the fire on his neighbor's house. That's the neighbor's own fault that his house is on fire. But Thomas is going over to put out the fire. He burns his hand really badly in the process. And he, he saves the guy's house. I mean, he might have saved his life, I don't know. But he saved the house. And the chief of the village finally heard what was going on, and the, all the people were so outraged because everyone loved Thomas, and they said, he's going to jail. This neighbor that's doing this is going to jail. So they put him in prison, and Corey heard all of this right at the time the man had been put in prison, and Thomas you know, said to her, he's been imprisoned, and Corey said, well, it's very good that he's in prison because he could no longer endanger you or your family. And the man said, no, I'm so, I'm so sorry for that man. I'm so burdened for that man. I, I want him to know Jesus, and he's now stuck in this prison cell, and he can't really hear the gospel there, and he's just, you know, his life is going nowhere. I'm so burdened for him. And Thomas wasn't relieved and taking delight in the fact that his enemy was in jail. He wanted him to be set free. He wanted him to know the love of Christ. So Corey prayed with Thomas, and he, she said he fell on his knees, and he said, I pray not only that you would win this man's soul, but that he and I would become a team for the gospel. And Corey said she'd never quite heard a prayer like that. She'd never seen anything like this. This man is praying for his enemy, not just saying, I forgive him, help him to, you know, find you. It was like this passionate prayer for him to radically come to Christ and for them to be a team for the gospel. So she goes into the prison. She finds this neighbor man who's there. She shares with him Thomas's heart for him what Thomas said about him, how Thomas prayed for him, what Thomas' desire was, that they would be a team for the gospel. And right then and there, this man fell on his knees and he said, I've never seen that kind of love and forgiveness. That must mean Christianity is real. He gave his life to Christ. Corey led him to the Lord that day. And just as Thomas had prayed, he got out of prison, they embraced as brothers in Christ and they became a missionary team for the gospel. Those two men traveled all around and led people to Christ as a team. Thomas had this bigger vision. It wasn't just like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll grit my teeth and forgive this man who has caused so much havoc in my life. He's like, no, I claim this man's soul for the gospel. I want to be a team with him. Let's, get, let's, let's think according to God's pattern here. God can do such a huge miracle, and that's exactly what happened. So my challenge to all of us today, are we willing to catch God's bigger vision? 
When we look at our, quote, enemies, those who hate us, those who despise us, those who stand for things that are opposite of what we stand for, are we willing to see the bigger picture, God's bigger vision, walk in his victorious love? Are we willing to become those open channels, those conduits to overcome evil with good? Can't do it in our own strength. There's no way we can. God can do it through us when we're willing. A lot of us just put the barrier there and we're like, they don't deserve it, therefore I'm not going to open myself to that kind of forgiveness. But if we're willing to remove that barrier, God can do that miracle through us and the world can be changed. Here's the key truth. Right now the enemy is working overtime to fragment and divide the body of Christ, to splinter relationships, to erode the fellowship of the saints because this kind of despise, sort of I despise my enemy or I, I mock those who disagree with me is in the church as well. He is also trying to keep us so caught up in our own frustration towards those who are ensnared by sin in our culture that we are losing opportunities to win precious souls for eternity. What if the KKK, those original good Christians that want to preserve future generations, and they saw these evil immigrants coming into their country, what if they took a totally different approach? Wow, what an opportunity to reach these people who are so lost with the gospel. They didn't look at it that way. They're like, no, get out. We don't want you. We're going to kill you if you come any closer. But what if they had taken this approach? What would have happened? How would our country have changed? Let's refuse to play the enemy's game. Remember that God's victorious love is so much greater than any difficult relationship we face, than any hatred, than any persecution, than any abuse we could face at the hands of our enemies. God's love can be victorious. As Corey Ten Boom once said, it is not my ability, but my response to God's ability that counts. That is the attitude we need to have when it comes to loving our enemies and overcoming evil with good. It is not our ability, it is our response to God's ability that counts. I'd like to just take a few minutes to pray and just let God work this truth in our souls and show us if we have been maybe not necessarily walking in hatred towards our enemies, but maybe putting that barrier there where we're not willing for God to take that love and forgiveness to the level he wants to take it in our lives, whether it's to others in the church or those in our culture. Lord, we do lay our lives before you and we ask that you would work that miracle of victorious love in our hearts. We're all in a different place. Some of us do have deep-seated anger and hatred toward others, toward those who don't stand for the same things that we do. Some people, some of us here just have maybe a, we've stopped short of the full forgiveness and the full love, that miracle that you desire to do in and through us in loving our enemies. I pray that that hindrance, that blockade, that barrier within our souls would be removed, that we would allow you to remove it and allow you to do that astounding, breathtaking work of supernatural, heavenly love and forgiveness. Show us firsthand in a personal way what it means to overcome evil with good. And Lord, may we be conduits of your word, your truth, your light, your hope in the times in which we live because we are willing for you to do that miracle through us. We freshly consecrate our lives to you and make ourselves available for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. 
Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.